What's up guys, welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. So I'm gonna do a very short intro today because I'm actually not in the studio, as you can see. I'm in Malahide Castle here in North Dublin and uh, it's absolutely beautiful. It's about as far from where our guest today is having a conversation with me from. We're talking with Brian Grimes. Now, Brian is an entrepreneur, real estate entrepreneur, uh, general contractor, uh, developer, he's all of that. The guy is in his mid-30s now, but uh, has got a really interesting story and is very active in the gut renovation, as he calls it, which is where you buy property and it requires complete rebuild or strip down to the very sort of basic uh, structure. And he's done 300 of them and everything that he does, he keeps for his own passive income portfolio. So very interesting discussion. I think you're gonna get a lot of value from this. And so without further ado, my conversation with Brian Grimes. You're listening to Behind the Facade and I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher. On this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and your behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Brian Grimes, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Brian, um, we've just uh, figured out that we weren't recording, so <laughs> I'm going to uh, spill the beans and uh, and admit to it. That's the first rookie mistake I've made in my podcast. Um, we were talking about 9-11, and uh, we won't go back over old history, but obviously yesterday was 9-11. You're based in the Bronx now, having, yeah. having studied in Columbia. Um, you're originally from Philadelphia. So just... I mean, I'd love to go and uh, examine what exactly brought you into the property business. I mean, did you study anything to do with property when you were at Columbia? I really didn't. I was an econ major. And um, for the econ majors, they kind of railroaded us all into investment banking. That was kind of, uh, you know, what they recommended everybody go into. And I was always one to study lifestyle versus just like income and um you know, whatever the career path was. And when I saw like, you know, the partners, I would always look at what are the partners doing? And they're working like 20 hour days, barely seeing their family. They're making great money, but it wasn't the lifestyle that I wanted. I wanted to be my own boss. Uh, my parents were both very entrepreneurial, uh, you know, as, as I was growing up. So I always wanted to do kind of my own thing. So I got into financial planning. I went back to Philly, but I had, I had uh, friends that were in real estate that were investing in real estate. One of my best friends uh, had already picked up maybe two or three like Section 8 properties, which were the government uh, voucher kind of housing uh, properties where uh, you could put in like a low income family and the government would pay the rent or a large portion of the rent. Okay. You can um, call that back in Ireland here, we would call that housing assistance. Yeah. So yeah, it's exactly. It's like a housing assistance program. Absolutely. So um, he was doing that. I remember being out at a we were at like a bar or a club like when I was still in college and he was a few years ahead of me. And um, he pulls out like a like just like a knot of like 20s and hundreds. And I'm like, well, what is what is that? 
you know, we're broke college kids. And he's like, oh, this is the rent money. So from that point, I knew, you know, I want a piece of that. I need to get into whatever this is. So I was always studying it. And as I started working in financial planning, every dime I could save, I was saving to put into real estate and get my first deal and then, you know, continue. I think a lot of people can relate to what you've been saying about lifestyle there, because there's a huge amount. I mean, it's funny when you look at, you know, Netflix series and stuff, there's suits and it has all these guys and it's very stylish. And, you know, these lawyers working in the big firm in, in New York City. But the reality is so far from, I mean, they those guys would be working like 80 hour weeks and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. They don't get home at all, let alone like, you know, have time to go off and drink kind of expensive champagne. And so and um, and so I think obviously the investment banking side that you're kind of being railroaded in in college, that's exactly that same kind of lifestyle. It's working all around the clock. And you, yeah, you didn't want a piece of that. So that's <laughs> you relate. And there's a lot of people that what what the property industry really offers is that kind of passive income where you're you're bringing in the money regardless of whether you're putting in the hours or not. It's it's yeah. rent. Obviously, you got to kind of manage a few balls in the air and things like that. But at least, yeah, I can I can understand the attraction. And um, in terms of, I mean, being you're from Philadelphia, you moved to Columbia. Were you able to do anything in New York to start with, or did you did you have to kind of go back towards Philadelphia before you could start your career in, in as an investor? I think like I had some really good mentors from Columbia, and one of my mentors, the, I went to him for principles. He was a uh, commercial uh, mortgage banker um, for Bank of America, and he you know was doing commercial deals with like Jay Z, Alicia Keys, and wow. some just like some big you know celebrities. So. He, um, you know, he definitely had my ear uh, and still does. And I went to him for a principal to just say, like, how can I stay safe investing? And he's just like, look, buy where, you know, rent to who, you know, and you'll always be successful. Um, and I took that to mean, you know, when I'm getting started, buy some properties in my backyard, like where I grew up and rent to people that are from that same walk of life uh, that I'm familiar with and comfortable with. And I would have success. So I knew I wanted to start in Philly. Um, because that was the market that I was the most familiar with. You know, also in New York, you're talking about a kind of top five market in the world. Yeah. So um, it's it's extremely expensive. There's a ton of cash buyers. You you definitely have a better opportunity going to places like Philly or Baltimore or Cleveland or some of these uh, what I would call sister cities. Like uh, Philly is a sister city to New York because New Yorkers hate Boston. That's the yeah. next biggest city. Um, they're not too fond of Connecticut either, uh, for whatever reason. So they love Philly. Uh, there's no, um, real negative stigma there. So, uh, it being the sister city to New York, you have people who are going, uh, to Philly to get lower, lower taxes, lower rents, lower cost of living. And it just seemed like a a logical, you know, next step. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the worst thing about investing in property is you don't know, what you're buying, you really are lining yourself up for a fall because you oh, know, yeah. it, 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 like, it looks like good value to you from your perspective of wherever you're used to, but you could be buying at 10%, 15% over the market. Uh, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And um, I mean, and so tell us, you, I saw in your, I was looking through your LinkedIn and you worked in Bridgewater, which um, obviously that's Ray Dalio's 
firm originally and so I mean did you did you find anything of value working in a big firm like that when you started your own thing or were you just kind of biding your time waiting to get to the to, to running your own business? Um, you know, I, I did a bunch of things. So when I was working at Bridgewater, I was I was doing um, high net worth asset management. Uh, we were managing maybe one point three billion for about 300 families, uh, privately wealthy families. And that was, you know, that was eye opening to see, you know, how millionaires were living. Some millionaires were paycheck to paycheck, <laughs> believe yeah. it or not. Um, others were very frugal and saved money. So it's interesting to to kind of see that and experience that. I, I left there and went to a startup, um, Policy Genius, where we were selling insurance direct to consumer all over the internet, all across the country, and that was shaking up the insurance industry. And that was uh, really cool. I was kind of running the call center there, uh, training the new agents, and um, you know, on the phone directly with the consumers. And that was that was a lot of fun. And everywhere I worked, I always tried to just study um, whoever was in control of the company. How are they building it? If there was like a, a, a two-headed partnership, how did that partnership work? How are they uh, managing the day-to-day? When I got to work at the startup, I got to see behind the veil of uh, you know, a company, what's really you know, behind this engine. Uh, there's an engineering team, there's a marketing team, there's product managers. Um, getting to see that was preparing me to start my own thing. So I always had it in my mind that I was going to work until I could save up enough money to buy enough properties to just break free from the nine to five. Yeah. Uh, and I ended up retiring kind of from the nine to five at age 30. Nice one. And in terms of, I mean, the, the step to get to that, I mean, what most people do is they'll buy a couple and then they, you know, they'll kind of, they'll get to a kind of point where there's enough money kind of coming in that you can break away. Did you do that like through bootstrapping or did you raise money from investors or how did you kind of get yourself to, to that breakaway point? It was it was definitely bootstrapping. And I don't know that I quite hit the breakaway point that we love to hit. Two things happened to me. I call it one is the uh, the Clark Kent Superman syndrome. And this will happen before you hit a breakaway uh, speed. What happens is you you're an employee by day and a boss by night or by lunch break. So yeah. you get two or three properties and you quickly become a boss. You're an owner, and there's this different attitude and energy of that. And then you start to feel like an imposter uh, because you're putting on the glasses and the suit and you're going in and being a, pretending to be an employee. And you're talking to your boss at the time, and they're like, "Well, I'm smarter than you. I'm the boss. I deal with all this." And you're like, "Well, I'm a boss too." And it, it uh, one of those egos ultimately wins out. It's usually the Superman that, uh, you know, beats up the Clark Kent uh, energy. And then you you're ready at that point. You can no longer stand pretending and being an imposter. So that happened. And also um, when I was at the startup, I had built up the business to the point where it needed me. So I started to get into heavy uh, gut renovation. And I knew if I didn't leave and focus full time on this gut renovation because there were so many balls in the air, it was going to fail. So there was no there was no doubt in my mind that I had to go all in or it was definitely going to fail. So yeah. I decided, well, I can always get another nine to five you know, job uh, with my background. I better go for this now while I'm young, while I have the energy. Yeah. So tell us 
you you did manage a lot of renovations um but did you start out like that or you know tell us the progression did you start with one or five or, or how did you kind of progress through to the point where you were doing hundreds of them yeah i I started how uh, most of us start, which is like turnkey. So I started off turnkey doing like a FHA house hack, just What's putting FHA? down what? FHA uh, in the States is like a first time home uh, buyer's uh, mortgage where you can put down three and a half percent down and, and get a, a property. So you can do this on anything from one to a four family property. So you can go out and get a quadplex uh, with three and a half percent down. And that allows you to get a multi and, and just get a lot of leverage so that you can try to build up cash flow, maybe live in one unit, rent out the other units and try to live for free or get paid to live in your own property. Um, and that's usually done on move in ready turnkey properties, turnkey, meaning you just sweep the floors, put some paint on the walls and hand over the keys and start collecting rent. And that's what I did. Um, you know, my first deal, I was I was cash flowing about a thousand dollars a month off that first deal. I only put five grand into the deal. So wow. I got all my money back in five months. And then um, and then I was kind of off and running. I uh, got another duplex kind of from a bank bank owned. It just needed like sheetrock and small touch ups. These, these were like cosmetic. And that was part of the evolution. Then I went down to Baltimore and I did a gut renovation um, that was. I thought it was going to be cosmetic, but it's like you start pulling back the walls and it's like, uh, the money pit. So um, you get into one of these deals, which was good. It was all cash. Um, so it was it was more comfortable than like if you're doing a hard money loan. But I learned that process. Then I was ready to take on Philly full gut. And when I got to Philly, I bought three uh, shells. Um, one was a teardown. One was a uh, a burnout, like the whole second floor just burnt out. And one was just a, a regular show. And the teardown was like this, the roof was on the first floor, first floor is in the basement. And oh, there's wow. just like a pit of tires and water. And it was so just it, like, it, it yeah, it was just start again. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was down to the four walls, full gut, um, get everything out and rebuild it from scratch. And, you know, I went through that process. I had a contractor run off with $40,000 um, in, in that project. Um, had to, you know, pick up the pieces and, and say, look, I better get really serious about this or this isn't going to last too long and I'll be right back at the desk job. And I just got, you know, really laser focused on it and started to build into that, build a small construction crew, become my own GC and learn um, as I go. We, we, we call it building the plane while you're flying it yeah. um, type of a philosophy. And it just you know, there's a series whenever you're doing something like this from scratch without mentorship, which is not what I would recommend. The School of Hard Knocks is 100 times more expensive than mentorship. Yeah. When you're doing this, there's a series of, of what I call needle threads. So um, you're going to run out of money if you if you have no idea what you're doing and, and no mentorship, you're going to run out of money and go to E. And if you're lucky, a lend, you'll connect with a lender who will come and fund the deal or make things happen. And you'll go through series after series of needle thread moments where it's like, it's all caving in, it's all going to collapse. Oh, somebody comes in with a bag of cash and we're back and, and we're running. It's part of uh, that startup type of energy. Um, but that was the iteration of just going through and building property after property, getting better, um, getting more crews and, and more uh, contractors to believe in the mission and just doing it a deal at a time um ultimately scaling up to cut costs down 
And, and that was why I scaled it was I started to see the savings at higher volumes. So I started to scale. Yeah, I, well, I wanted to ask you that. I mean, just for anyone who's listening, who's not familiar with the term, when you say a G, you became your own GC, you mean a general contractor. Yeah. Um, so do you have, I mean, would you consider yourself to be now a general contractor as well as a property investor? I would consider myself to be a developer. It's yeah. kind of what I call it. Um, and, and as part of that, you you need several, dis- you need almost every discipline. And that's the unique part I kind of looked at real estate and I said, well, who makes all the money uh, in real estate? Because that's who I want to be. So then you it, you just follow the money. Who writes all the checks? Well, the yeah. developer pays the contractors. They pay the lenders. They, uh, you know, pay for all the rehab, all the materials, all the con- they're paying everybody, the insurance man. They're just paying everybody. So they must be making all the money. Right. Or how could they pay everybody? So yeah, I just kept yeah. it really that simple and and kind of got into um, that mindset where as the developer, you have to know as much as the, the GC, as much as the, um, lender, as much as the insurance broker, as much as the realtor, you kind of have to know all of these disciplines, uh, to be able to navigate successfully. Do you manage the properties yourself or do you have, do you outsource that? I've done both, right? So, my my uh, recommendation to people who are thinking about that, which one do I go with and why and when? Um, I, I recommend going with property management first. So a lot of people like to self-manage when they're small and they think when I get big enough, I'll hire property management. Yeah, That never works. Here's why it doesn't work. When you build a business, you need to build in a business that can support leverage and other people. If you build a business that requires you to self-manage to be profitable, you're never going to be comfortable cutting the check even as you get bigger because you never built that model with that cost and expense of property management in mind. Right. You're also not going to uh you're also going to burn out before you get there. Because as you I've seen so many people, there's like this uh this glass ceiling of 10 properties. People get up, they get 10 properties. And they're like, I'm right here. I got 10. I'm cash flowing. And before you know it, they're down to five, four, three, because they can't keep up with the demand of the self-management once that volume gets to a certain level. There's too many tenants, too many headaches. So um, I recommend property management first. And then as you get to a certain scale, the cost of property management, let's say you had 20,000 a month coming in, that 10% of two grand a month, you could hire a virtual assistant from Bogota, Colombia, from Mexico City to answer the phone and send out the contractors and manage the entire operation. So then it becomes cheaper to uh, hire VAs and manage yourself. Yeah. No, I think it's a great point. And that's why I was asking because I was, you know, there's only so many things that you can do yourself. Uh, Yeah. There's only so many hours in the day. And if you're doing the general contracting as well, you're kind of like, there's a lot of balls in the air that you're trying to- Too much. Yeah. Yeah. Spinning plates, you know, that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and so tell us, I mean, you, you said then that you decided to scale. I mean, how did you go about scaling? Was it, did you bring in external investors or did you just, you know, borrow and, and leverage yourself up? More leverage. The lenders are cheaper than the investors to a degree. Um, the bank has so much money that it doesn't know what to do with that. It's, it's just substantially cheaper as long as you can move at the profit speed. 
So you can't be in a, a full gut renovation for eight months. You have to get it down to like three months. So right. there's a bit of honing that happens before you can scale. But once you, uh, how do you scale is with volume. So I look at, um, you look at the business and you think like, if you have children, you want to, you want to make more food and have more food in your house, especially if you have like young boys, then they can eat. You have yeah. to have more or they're going to eat everything. You know, yeah. the, the less food you have, the hungrier they're going to get, they're going to eat through all of it. So with the, with deals, you want to have more deals than your contractors can work their way through at all times. Because once you have that, now you have a, a, uh, a model where you can get people to buy into working with you long-term. You're not the one deal guy. You're the volume guy. And the volume guy gets volume discounts and gets contractors who buy in because they don't want to chase the next deal. They want to know that the next deal is always there. And once we get into this one, there will be five more. So and you become you the big client who who is like, you know, let's look after this guy because he's going to give us the next deal. You know, Boy, there's a lot more to lose, right? Because now you're not just losing this deal. You're losing the next 20. So um, you you build the deals uh, with the volume. It's very attractive to a lender as well, because lenders don't like new people. They like dealing with existing relationships that are proven. So if they can go to you and you can bring 100 deals in a year, well, then they don't have to go to 100 of you to bring in one deal a year. It's much yeah. easier of a business relationship. So you can set that up with a lender, bring in the volume. And then once you have the volume, you can pretty much um, start to scale. And how you scale is you get a warehouse. Uh, a warehouse might cost you $3,000 a month uh, in, a, in a major city. When I got my warehouse, three thousand dollars a month I was saving fifty thousand to sixty thousand dollars a month running that scale just from having the warehouse because you can order your materials in bulk from China and now you're saving forty percent on your materials and that's yeah. a that's real money. The the savings is like it's real. Uh, it'll it will impact your bottom line. You get trucks, your own dump trucks, uh, which. In, in the States, you could bonus depreciate in year one. If I got a, a dump truck for $50,000, I could write it off the entire 50000 on taxes this year. So um, you're incentivized to go out and build capital um, and infrastructure. So you get a couple dump trucks, you get some delivery drivers who can get the materials from the warehouse to the jobs faster. So they're yeah. not standing at Home Depot or waiting in line and buying. And doing. So you start to create all of these efficiencies that make you faster. And the, the speed is the money. So scaling started to save, you know, easily 30 to 40 percent on entire jobs. So you're knocking your your construction costs down by thirty thousand, forty thousand dollars a deal. And then you're going to run 100 deals a year. That's yeah. three to four million uh, right there in savings that will, will uh, you know, turn into cash actually in the bank because you're not burning through it. And is there a, is there a risk that though you know you learn to run before you can walk and that you you scale a little bit too quickly and that your next minute you don't have the cash to fund all of the stuff that's happening simultaneously? Absolutely, there there's always that risk um, of growing too much. You only want to, you know, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered, right? You only want to grow at the the right pace, and there is a. Uh, there is a pace where you can get greedy and try to run too fast because, you know, the money is good and everything's kind of flowing. So you just want to keep a, your eye on the ball. You don't want to. This is why the perfect recipe is more deals than contractors, because your your real expense is carrying the cost of construction. 
yeah. the contractors. As long as that is managed and there's an appropriate amount of deal flow and budget within those deals to support your team, you're pretty much good. But there is a recipe. This is like, I would describe this like baking a cake without without a exact like recipe book. Like you have to feel it out. And then after a point, you become like a chef. You have your own uh, style and way of doing this. You're, you're truly like an orchestrator of uh, being of an construction. helps. Like you, you're just, you're creative and you can kind of. Yeah, you have to adapt. I mean, this is where working at the startup and and understanding building the plane while you're flying it as a way of life, um, you start to just have your antennas up and you're just constantly adjusting. I mean, your job really as a, a developer and a real estate investor is to put out fires all day. Yeah. At the at the highest level, that's your job is to wake up uh, and just see what the world throws at you and put it out. It's the ultimate reality TV. And um, one thing that you'll learn over the course of time, which is what I learned, is there's no issue that you'll face that you can't solve because and, you, and you'll build this muscle over the course of time because you'll have thought you were going to fail or that you couldn't solve it so many times that and, and have come up with the solution and solved it that you'll no longer believe that there's an issue you can't solve. So then the fear will go away and you'll just be able to execute and stay clear and, and kind of drive the ship. Yeah, that's well, I mean, positive self-belief um, as opposed to these kind of self-limiting beliefs that people have and they kind of hold themselves back. Yeah. That's really, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's some of the stuff that we like to talk about here on the show is, is mindset related and, before we get on to that, I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, have you got any tips for, you know, you, you mentioned there the fact that you've got to find the deals um, and that's that's the big thing for you. Yeah. I mean, going out and, you know, looking at, you know, properties that are coming up for sale and all that kind of stuff. Is there any kind of tips that you have for, for scaling the finding aspect Uh do you go directly to the banks or, you know, wholesale or how, how are you going about that? Um, it's all about it's all about being in a position to cherry pick. So for me, it's like all of the above. They'll be like, do you go to the bank? Do you go to wholesalers? Do you go to direct to consumer? All of them, because I have to create an environment where I feel like I can cherry pick. So I need an overload of deals. I need people bringing me deals. I'm, I want every deal in this city to come across my desk, everyone. And then I can sit back and cherry pick the best deals. I need uh, some boots on the ground. I need somebody who can go out and inspect the deal at a whim. It hit the market at 10. I need a guy who can be in that property at 1030 with a camera, shooting videos of it, showing me what we're, you know, what we're seeing or if the floors are like this or this. Um, and, and that speed, it's everything in real estate is speed. So even the speed of being able to get in the deal this allows you to beat out all the mom and pop investors who are working a nine to five who can't get to the deal to the weekend. So the best deals, I've actually gotten the best deals, believe it or not, on the on the MLS, like the public listings that everybody sees. I get pennies on the dollar deals there because I learned that the best deals come on and off the market in anywhere from 24 to 48 hours. That's why most people never see them because they're just on and off, on and off. And you have to get your speed up to that level. And how you right. get it is instant deal alerts and having a boots on the ground person who can run and see that deal quickly, get back to you with the information so that you can get out an offer. I've, I've locked up deals in 10 hours, eight hours of them hitting the market with 
different systems that I teach uh, people how to do. And that's the difference. But it's all about deal overload. You want to get them from everywhere. Uh, you want every deal in, in your city or in your area coming across your desk. And then you want to cherry pick just the pennies on the dollar deals so that you're putting the most profitable deals in your pipeline. Yeah, yeah. And so tell us, Brian, what does your team look like? You mentioned, you know, getting boots on the ground and stuff like that. You know, describe your team uh, in terms of the, you know, the most important functions that you have, because that guy that you're sending in to look at the deal, that strikes me as an important person because you can't make a bid on a property unless you have confidence in the person you're sending in. Yeah. So I try to, and and these, these are all iterations as well. Like, first you'll think I got to send in my head guy, right? My, my guy with 25 years experience, I need him to see every deal, but you can't really do that. Can you? Cause he's too important. You actually need him in the properties that you're building, overseeing the, the uh, contractors that are actively building projects as you're scaling. So what you do is you get two layers. Most of my systems will have a basic system and then a fail seat. And I've learned that from work in high net worth, you know, advisory where you can't have something slip through the cracks. Like it's, it's a $10 million client that that's not, it's just not going to work for us. So um, I'll have a guy who's just like my runner. He's kind of younger. Uh, he's good with the technology, with the smartphones. I'm going to have him run through the property and he's going to show me everything, but it, what's really important is what he feels because you can't feel the property through the video. So yeah. you can't necessarily feel the level changes or the softness of the floor or what's going on structurally. So I have him feeling it out, talking to me as he's walking through, talking to a level where if I closed my eyes and wasn't even looking, I could hear the property. Like I want to hear it. Um, Now I'm in a position to actually put out a a preliminary offer and lock up that deal with a small deposit with a window of maybe four to five days before that deposit goes hard. During that period, if I locked up this deal at a price point that I know is profitable, as long as there's nothing majorly wrong with this deal, then in that four to five day period, I'm going to send out my head guy. So now I've reduced the volume of deals that my head guy has to see. He only sees deals that are under contract and he's serving as that final inspection point so I don't make a mistake. And that's how you keep your speed, but also keep your control, your quality control. And that's a, you know, an important iteration. And the guy that you sent in, it just strikes me as like you you said it earlier, you're like the, the conductor of the orchestra here. You, you you don't necessarily need to go and see the property yourself, but your guy, your head guy that you 25 years, as long as he goes in and sees it, he probably yeah. know more than you would know, I guess. Uh, you know, oh, of anyway. course. So why have him? Why yeah, have anybody exactly. who in any role who doesn't, who you don't think is as smart or maybe even smarter than you, maybe they don't have the vision of the, the total picture, but yeah. within their element, you want them to be, you know, pretty sharp. So, um, no, ab- absolutely. Like I, I'm going to trust him. I mean, there, I've built hundreds of properties. I've never stepped foot in and there's, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm seeing every video. So I learned this, uh, I learned this very early in the business as I was scaling. When I had four deals going on at a time in Philly, I used to get in my car from New York, drive down to Philly, see every deal, shake hands, kiss babies, drive back and beat traffic, right? Then you get up to eight deals and you go down and you still only saw four. Yeah. And you're like, how, I can't get to the next level. I had to actually put the cameras and the inspectors and the different systems in place. Then I could sit back air traffic control 
behind my computer, I could see 40 every day. Yeah, yeah. That was the scalability. So once I learned that, I started to understand how to properly inspect these, these properties and then get in the right people at the right times for the fail safe so that you can comfortably, you know, navigate a deal. And once you've done, I say like, you know, I've done over 300 full gut renovations at this point. Once you've done a hundred, you kind of seen it all. Yeah. You, you've run into most of the issues. Everything else is just a repeat and replay of the, of the original hundred. And tell me, Brian, what, what, like, in terms of the full gut, you finish, you rent it out. It, are you hanging on to these properties or are you recycling yeah. them? Is it just so you've just built up a big portfolio at this stage? Yeah, you just build up a big portfolio. We call it flipping the house to yourself. So you're um, we're typically buying properties for 10, 20 cents on the dollar. We're investing 35, 40 cents on the dollar. So we're all in at like 65 percent of the after repair value. You can go to a, a 30 year mortgage lender. Um, I know in the UK, they're, they're talking about like 50 year notes, which, which I think is going to be crazy if that, if that rolls out. But um, you go to a, a long term, we'll call it mortgage lender, you get a 75% uh, mortgage on this property. So there's a 10% spread that you could get in a cash out refinance. And that allows you maybe some money to recycle and put into the next deal. And uh, you just do that over and over and over again. And you're setting these properties up so that the rents cover the mortgage and produce a little bit of cash flow. And it's a question of doing it, like you said, at the right speed, at the right pace. So you're not yeah. too far ahead or too far behind. And um, just building up a, a consistent portfolio of cash flow. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the ideal way to it, because now you've got the passive income coming in. It's paying down the mortgages. Now, the only thing is, uh, and, and maybe we can kind of go on to this for a moment, is um, just now that rates are starting to rise, what's that doing? Like, you're, yeah, you're not good. in your head. You're yeah, start, you're, you know, it is, uh, that's going to throw a spanner in the works, presumably, yeah. uh, in terms of the speed that you can operate at now. So how are you combating the rise in rates and where do you see it all kind of playing out? Well, I see it playing out to two areas. So I'll answer I'll answer it in, in sequence. How have I been combating it? So even before rates started rising, I started getting more creative in the iterations in terms of how do I produce more out of less? How do I get more cash flow out of every asset? And one strategy was was a co-living. So co-living, because I'm doing full gut renovation anyway, um, I started to break down like a three bed, one bath starter home. And you blow it up to the four walls, rebuild it as three beds, three baths. Everybody just shares like the kitchen and the small like eat-in living room, eat-in kitchen type of area. And each one of those um, bedrooms is like a master suite. It has its own bathroom. You can only get two through the bedroom. You could rent each one of those suites in a city like Philly for $750 a month. Whereas that three bed, one bath would rent for $1,250 a month. This yeah. co-living property will rent for $2250 a month. So that's an extra thousand dollars of cash flow. So when you're doing stuff like that, that you're creating, yeah. oh yeah, you're creating excess cash flow to the point where only you could maybe do this strategy with co-living. Whereas other people, the rates went up and they just can't cash flow anymore. I'm yeah. still cash flowing because I'm I'm just a little bit, I believe in density. Just keep that uh that uh in mind. Dentrification is is kind of the word I've I've coined for it. But it's just adding density to neighborhoods and to properties is uh, is my philosophy uh, there. In terms of where I think it's heading, 
you know, things like the 50 year note um, or the 40 year note, you know, mortgage notes. I think they're going to the banking industry is not just going to roll over. Right. They're not just going to look at demand, fall through the floor and just say, oh, I guess the show is over. This is musical chairs to them and the show must go on. They're going to keep playing the music. They're going to roll out. They'll roll out a 60 year note if that's what it takes to produce cash flow and keep demand up. So I think we're already seeing the um, the banking industry is going to adjust. Um, they don't care. They're going to continue to adjust uh, to, to meet demand. And that's just, you know, economic supply and demand. They're going to find it. And if it's on a 40 year or a 45 or a 50 year note, they'll do it. And as an investor, if you're, you know, cash flowing and putting a tenant in a house and the tenant's paying the mortgage off, you might not care if it's a 30 or 40 or 50 year note, as long as it's cash flowing and, uh, and the numbers make sense and it's, it's a fixed rate. So um, that's where I see things headed. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Just to go back on what you were talking about, I think that there is what we call, you call it co-living, but what we call it here is HMO. And that's Mm -hmm. a house of multiple occupants. And um, it's, it's something that I'm actually seeing an awful lot more of. I was just with a friend on Monday last week and we were, um, we were visiting one of his properties and he bought a place that started out as a three bedroom home and he extended out the rear and he went up into the attic. And so it's now a seven bedroom home, but the mm. seven beds, each of them has its own bathroom. Nice. And, and, and he even went and he put in a small little, in some of them, there's a little kitchenette. So it yeah. has a, a microwave and a sink. And, and a hot plate. And, yeah. and a hot plate. Exactly. And, and yeah. what's really interesting is that he's managed to go and, um, and find a corporate tenant that will rent all seven of the bedrooms for their for their what they're trying to do nowadays obviously is recruit staff and stuff but the big issue that they're having is staff can't get accommodation so they're taking yeah. the entire house and they can now allocate you know you need a room come on you know join our workforce we can actually also provide you with uh, yeah so it's yeah. an interesting one and what's really interesting though is that it's it's like the numbers that you said the house itself would only rent for 1200 but you're getting three rooms at 750 and this is exactly the kind of numbers that this thing works out at. and yeah. uh, and so what actually I, i've been looking at this from the point of view of if you're getting creative like that then the increased rates could actually be an advantage to somebody like you who has a creative kind of way of doing this because you can go in you can do this to a house whereas everyone else sees the house, oh, well, you can only get 1200 and the mortgage is now greater than that. But you can see it and go, no, no, there's actually, there's 2,000, you know, 250 to get out of that property. And, yeah. uh, and so, yeah, it's still a good deal. So um, you can probably find that you can actually drive a harder bargain then with the, the sellers as well. Exactly. The further you can see beyond the competition, the harder you can negotiate. It, it just gives you a, a, a unfair or competitive advantage, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, Brian, normally what I like to do is get into kind of some, some sort of mindset stuff. And um, I, I just wanted to kind of ask you in terms of, you know, the, the habits and behaviors that you have adopted that you think have been most contributory towards the success that you've had. Like, is there any particular things that you think are really, really critical towards success? I think it's, uh, I think being fearless is, is crucial. Um, and there's, there's levels to being fearless. Um, 
you don't want to be, you don't want to not have a pulse. You don't want to not recognize like risk, right? Because then you're just being delusional. So you have to know that the risk is there. Um, you just have to do it anyway at times and understand that you're building a muscle. So definitely working through uh, becoming comfortable being uncomfortable, like which is which is part of growth as a developer is truly um, understanding that you've done more with less before and you've gotten through hardship before and that you'll you'll figure it out. You know, um, hardship is the predecessor of innovation. So yeah. um, you kind of need it to uh, to innovate and to get to the next uh, level. So we we need that. If we don't have that, we're kind of staying stagnant. So it's definitely a good degree of fearlessness uh, involved. But I think my fearlessness was truly built from a financial standpoint. Um, when I first started working financial planning out of college, I was 100% commission, 25 years old, uh, 24, 25, 100% commission, no salary, uh, working in sales, cold calling, I grew rhino skin. You know, yeah. I, I just, after a point when you survive that type of a gauntlet with a, a 90% failure rate, you you develop a different type of a muscle where uh, you learn things like there's a two month delay on your energy. So if you're working at anything, um, you're not really going to see the benefits or the results for a couple of months. Unless you're doing a nine to five, you get paid right away. But when you're an entrepreneur, it's usually a couple of months before you start to see the the financial rewards for it. So going through that and, and kind of understanding that and just not having a salary to depend on so early, like when I was getting started, it, it, it built up my fearlessness from a financial standpoint to, I would say, the ultimate level to where I know that I know how money is made and money is made from energy. If I apply my energy to anything and my focus, I'll produce money at it. Like, I, I trust that. I know that for a fact because I've lived it so many times. So then the question becomes, what do you want to focus on and how big do you want to grow it? And uh, is it something that, you know, resonates with you on on multiple levels? But it's definitely all wrapped in this fearlessness and um, not being afraid to go out. I think one last part of, of uh, fearlessness is becoming, choosing what you're afraid of is also part of fearlessness. So I'm more afraid or I became more afraid of staying at the nine to five than even failing and, and uh, being an entrepreneur. I was more afraid to not try than to go out and actually fail. Yeah. You know, it was, it, it was more of a horrifying because I'm looking at the ultimate, you know, when I'm 50, when I'm 55, I'm looking 20, 30 years out and I'm like, I'm afraid of that. I'm going to go over here. Even if I fail, at least I can say I went after it and I got knocked out. You know, like so yeah, yeah. choosing your fears uh, or putting your fears in perspective is is huge. And the last thing I'll say about fear is everything's scarier in your head. Yeah, yeah. And you have to you have to understand that about fear. There's no why is it scarier in your head? Because there's nothing you can do about it. It's not in reality. In reality, when your house catches on fire, you can grab some water and put it out. In your head, there's nothing you can do because yeah. it's not real yet. So as the some of your biggest fears in real estate happen, and but they happen in reality, a minute at a time, a second at a time, and you can sit back and react and adjust and reflect, it, it, it starts to take the fear away because it was scarier in your head. And the more you see that and live through it, the less uh, impressed you are by your perceived fears of things. You just know they're not going to be that scary in reality. I'll get through it like everything else. Yeah, there's a confidence there for sure. And yeah. 
see that. Um, Brian, we're, we're getting close to wrapping up, but I, there's something that I have to ask you. <laughs> and uh, you'll probably know, you'll probably get this asked a bit, but did you ever play basketball with anyone famous? Uh, yeah. No, so, uh, well, a lot, of, a lot of famous guys, I would say, but I don't know anybody more famous. You know, my, my first um, high school game, and I was nationally ranked at this time, coming in, in the high school. Uh, I was, you know, top 10 in the country. Um, wow. about six, four, six, five, you know, I, I was on a team with a bunch of all Americans who were you know, seven feet, six, seven, six, eight, going to Duke Vanderbilt, um, university of Florida, just all-star studs. Our first game, they flew us out to Akron, uh, university to play LeBron James, um, wow. for the LeBron fans, which I'm a LeBronite, I, I would say. And, um, I mean, he was, he was it just insane. And this was during a time framing it once again, where, you know, YouTube wasn't built out yet. People were coming off a dial up. Like you couldn't just go out and see like endless clips of this guy and who he was. You had no idea who this guy was until you got on the court with him and played. And he was absolutely insane. And the environment was, I mean, just sold out. It was, it was absurd. It was, uh, I mean, it was bigger than some NBA games in terms of the intensity and the energy. Uh, in the environment. So um, that was, that was definitely an experience. And that year we played a ton of good people all over the country, but uh, you know, LeBron was definitely somebody who over the years has um, proven greatness, like over and over again at every level. And, and he must be, it must be a great inspiration for you. Uh, like just to see the platform that he's created for himself nowadays. I mean, he's just, yeah, he has a business uh, like nowadays, like, yeah. Incredible. Well, he was a business then, which was a, that was the the scary the uh, the strange part is he was a business then. He was at not only a different level physically, but definitely mentally. Um, the pressure he was under, but also the performance behind that. Like he knew the stakes. Um, he was you know with professional trainers and different things at a very early age. So, um, but no, his platform now is incredible. I mean, what. He, He's never missed a beat, in, in, in uh, my opinion. And even at that level, when he was in high school, I mean, he was ready to play pro by his junior year of high school. I mean, he was he was better than everybody in college, and then a lot of pros already. But I'll, I mean, he was ridiculous. I like, when I'm when I whenever what I know about him because I, I wouldn't know as much about him as, as you do. But what I've noticed is there's a there's a kind of a a respect that the guy has for the people around him and stuff. And what's interesting though is. He seems to be very uh, grounded and sure-footed, and he doesn't feel that he has to live this kind of live up to this lifestyle. And and unfortunately, I see that with with big sports stars, so many of them they go off and they feel like they have to live this lifestyle that that you know to show off, I guess you know how much money they earn. And I, I remember reading this figure that was really uh, really shocking, and it was that something like. 70% of uh, NBA players, national football players. Oh, yeah, they go broke. They, they end up broke within a couple of years of retirement. And uh, yeah. it's incredible that they can make so much money and yet burn through it because they have no kind of financial wherewithal. Yeah. Well, it's, you don't get it. It's, um, it's very difficult. Like as a, a, pro a professional athlete or athlete at these levels, you're not – you're almost like uh, something else. Like you're not a, you don't view yourself as a civilian. Like you're, yeah. you're just, you're different and you truly are. And everyone treats you that way. 
And when that happens, there's a stunted growth that happens. So whenever that transformation happens, that's how old you are. You could be 38, but if you made it to the NBA at 18, 19, you're 19 mentally because yeah. that's when you stopped growing. And when you have a bunch of yes men around you, people who are there to you know collect a check, you don't, you're not really like learning uh, at the same time. You also take the average person. Most of us make major financial mistakes all throughout our life, but we have our highest earning years in our 50s. And we're not making all that money in our 20s. For the athlete, they're making all the money when they're most likely to make the biggest financial mistakes. And then when they're the older and wiser, they're making, you know, they can't even make anything, right? So it's a a paradox uh, flip, which is almost set up to design. And then if there's somebody like me with real financial, you know, acumen who's managed money for millionaires and then all the people who are trying to kind of rob these guys or mooch off of them, they're going to keep me as far away as possible. Right. Yeah. They don't want me talking to them and tell them, look, put it in the real estate, do this, do that. Um, you know, get a whole life policy overfunded, non-MEC. They don't, they don't want me telling them what millionaires are doing to set up legacy and, and set up their families. Cause they want, yeah. you know, then they would say, Oh, well, I don't need this 10 guy, you know, 10 man entourage. Do I, that's yeah, not going to do anything yeah. for me. Yeah. yeah. I've read the stories about Mike Tyson and, you know, when he was at his, at the top of his game and he, he'd have this entourage and he'd buy them all the newest BMWs and stuff like that. And just like, blew yeah. <clears throat> Brian, yeah. we're at the, um, we're coming to the end of our conversation. I wanted to ask you, I ask all my guests the, um, the, the best advice looking back, you know, you're still a young man. And so it's, um, I'm not going to normally what I ask is, you know, knowing now what you know, if you were to sort of speak to yourself as an 18-year-old, is there advice that you would give yourself, your 18-year-old self, that at the time you wouldn't have thought was the case? Yeah, um, I would say I would I would have probably gotten into real estate sooner. I would say you're never you're never too young to get into this stuff. Um, a lot of us just aren't exposed to it even like trade trading the markets, getting into crypto and learning about this stuff. You're not too young. I hear that a lot from, uh, from people who reach out to me and they're like, Brian, you know, I want to learn. I want to get into real estate. I just feel like I'm too young. And I'm like, look, when you're 18, 19, you got all the energy. You can go out and do a 22 hour day, sleep two hours, take a nap and do it again. I can't at 35 at 55. You sure, you sure as heck can't. Right. Yeah. So you have all the energy to go out, and go after this thing that's when you want to take advantage of it that's that's the other paradox where we lose is we uh think we're going to go for our dreams later and then by the time we go for them we don't have the energy to go for them go for them early fail early and you can yeah. always go back and also the obligations of having family to look after oh yeah 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 absolutely having the kids and and you know all of those things which luckily i had mentors who were telling me this stuff when i was 25 like hey, look I'm 35 now. You better get your CFP. You better study and do this now because I got three kids and trust me, you can't do it with these kids hanging on you. It's it's just yeah. a different ball game. But I had great mentors. Yeah, it's a it's a big thing having a good mentor behind you. Brian, thanks so much for your time. Can you just if somebody wanted to check out a little bit more about you, is the what's the best place to find you more about you and uh, connect with you? Yeah, um, YouTube. You can find me on YouTube. Brian loves cash flow, and that's easy to remember because I love cash flow. Um, uh-huh. So you can find me on YouTube, uh, Instagram, 
Brian Grimes underscore 247 CFU for the 247 Cash Flow University. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Brian Grimes. Um, we have uh, some free trainings for you guys. It's all backlinked through through any of those uh, channels. Uh, www.workwithgrimes.com forward slash cash flow, workwithgrimes.com forward slash cash flow. And we're, um, you know, we're helping people from all over the country, uh, even outside of the country. We have a bunch of Canadians that are, you know, in our course that are investing in the U.S., learning how to invest out of town and put their money uh, where it goes further. Like I do, I invest all outside of New York, uh, Baltimore, Philly, Jersey, Delaware, Texas. I just put my money where it goes further. And that's what I recommend uh, everybody else do. Even if you're priced out in, uh, in London, you want to invest in the United States, definitely tap in. Um, wherever you're at in, in the world, you can, you can definitely do real estate today through technology like I do. Sure. All right, Brian, much appreciated. Uh, thanks for all your time. And I really enjoyed our conversation today. Likewise. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Behind the Facade. If you enjoyed that episode or if you found it useful in any way, please take a moment to leave a, a review over on iTunes if you're listening in on the podcast. If you're listening or you're watching in on the YouTube channel, then maybe you can leave us a like. And uh, if you can't do any of those things, maybe just share the episode out with somebody you think would find it useful. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover, uh, send me a message through the Facebook community. It's probably the best one to go for. That is called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you'll find me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. And uh, as you would expect, I have a website that has the same name, gavinjgallagher.com. If you go in there, you can join the email list. You can add yourself in there and you can find out what's going on on the various projects that I am working on. All right, guys, hope you enjoyed this one. Speak to you again next week.